Hello and welcome to Holmes Borden and the Watson Papers. This is your host, Chris Dilworth. Thanks for joining me. In almost every close relationship involving two people, especially if it's a long-standing relationship, whether it's platonic, whether it's a business partnership or a marriage, there are bound to be recurring problems. And those problems often follow a pattern. They tend to involve certain issues. In marriage, often the arguments or conflict has to do with sex, money, and kids. I've talked a fair amount about the dynamics between Sherlock and Watson, and I don't want to rehash them at this point. But at the same time, I think it's important to address one pattern of behavior that we see periodically, both in the official records and also in this case. Whenever Sherlock delegated Watson to do some of the investigative work, particularly when Watson is sent away from Sherlock's presence to an unfamiliar place, things almost always go wrong. Watson does his best, and he reports back to Sherlock thinking that he's done a good job. He talks about feeling proud or satisfied with what he's learned, and then invariably that pride or satisfaction gets destroyed in the face of Sherlock's criticism, and the criticism is often withering. Sherlock says things like, you didn't choose the right vantage point, you failed to use your common sense, you questioned the wrong people, or if you questioned the right people, you didn't ask them the right questions. Sherlock will tell Watson, you've made things worse. I'm not in the same position I was before I sent you there, I'm in a worse position. And this is what we see in the New Bedford fiasco. It's more of the same. And it makes you wonder why Sherlock would ever entrust Watson to do something important. I think maybe Sherlock has this emotional blind spot. He's convinced himself that this time Watson will do it right. I don't know why he thinks that. It's possible that he thinks nobody can be this inept and stupid, that eventually Watson's going to understand what he needs to do. But at any rate, this pattern happens again and again. So when Watson does screw something up, To his credit, Holmes, after expressing his frustration and saying something dismissive or even cruel, which is what he did when Watson came back from New Bedford on Tuesday, September 13, 1892, after he gets that out of his system, he always bounces back and he'll say something to conciliate Watson, to soothe his feelings, and then they move on. This is, I think, in part because Sherlock at his core is optimistic and forward-looking. And one of his strengths is that he's able to let go of his grievances and focus on the solution rather than the problem. This is what happened on the day that Watson screwed up with his New Bedford trip. And so within a few hours of leaving the hotel on their way out of Fall River, Sherlock makes peace with Watson and they're back on track. So let's pick up with them on that afternoon when they've arrived at the train station in Taunton. And now, obviously, because Sherlock was worried that Watson may have been followed back to Fall River, he's taken evasive measures. That's why they leave the hotel by the back entrance. That's why he hires a horse and buggy to leave town. He doesn't want to go through the train station because if somebody's pursuing them, that's where the pursuer would be waiting to see what train they took and where they went. So from Taunton, they take the train up to Boston. But first, Sherlock walks into town and sends off a few telegrams. Then when they arrive at South Station in Boston, on the evening of Tuesday, September 13, they go directly to the Union Club, which is where they had stayed previously. The next morning, Sherlock leaves early. 
and he tells Watson to wait for him. Watson spends the day at the club in a state of nervous tension. He's not able to concentrate. And as we've already discussed, unlike Sherlock, Watson doesn't have the ability to compartmentalize. He always finds it very difficult to remain calm in the middle of an important case, especially when he doesn't know exactly what's going on and when he's waiting for Sherlock to come back from investigating. That night, while they're sitting across from each other after dinner, smoking cigars, Sherlock brings Watson up to speed. And he says, to begin with, there's some good news. Mycroft managed to obtain a warrant for Moriarty's arrest, not for the Whitechapel murders, but for the financial crimes, the ones that had brought the organization down a couple of years earlier. So now they have a warrant. It's in America. It's been brought over by diplomatic mail, and it's now in the possession of the Consul General in Boston. That's the person that Sherlock was meeting with earlier in the day. His name is John Blunt. Mr. Blunt is going to accompany them the next morning to Fall River, and they're going to be meeting with the Reverend Jubb, J-U-B-B. This is what Holmes tells Watson. Watson's familiar with this guy, Jubb, at least to some degree. He knows that Jubb is one of the ministers at Lizzie's church. She attends the Central Congregational Church, and he has played an important role. He has been a real source of support for her from the start, from the time that she's first accused. And he even devoted one of his sermons to her. I think the Sunday after she's arrested, he's up in the pulpit thundering away about the presumption of innocence and how we all need to exert our powers of Christian mercy and trust in our the people that are close to us and our friends and so on. And it gets some press coverage. It gets a fair amount of attention. And along with his colleague at the church, the Reverend Buck, he visits Lizzie all the time at the jail, and he also attends the preliminary hearing in late August. He's there every day. Now, Watson knows that Jubb is English. He was born and raised in England. He comes from somewhere in the Midlands. started life as a laborer. He didn't have much education, but he'd taken up preaching in his late teens, and he'd worked his way into a position of prominence in the Congregational Church in England. And then, many years into his career, he gets a job offer with the Fall River Congregational Church. And in the spring of 1891, he heads over there. Except for this brief sojourn in America, otherwise he's lived his entire life in England. Now, Sherlock, the day before, the day before they travel down to Fall River, all three of them, Sherlock and Mr. Blunt, the Consul General, had contacted Jubb by telegram and had arranged to meet with him the next day, meaning Thursday morning. They didn't give him any specifics as to what they wanted to discuss. Sherlock had decided on a specific plan. Jubb was going to be the central part of that, but he didn't tell Jubb what exactly that involved. The night before they headed to Fall River, Sherlock explains to Watson that the plan is to isolate a number of people that are connected to the Borden family or related to the Borden family and pick them off one by one win them over, bully them, pressure them, convince them somehow to help. And each succeeding person would join them and lean on the next person, the next target. And the goal was to get to Emma. So Jubb was the first stepping stone. Uncle John Morse would be the second. And then the target would be Emma. Lizzie's beyond their reach. They aren't going to be able to talk to her directly. And this is partly because she's proud and obstinate and she would never cooperate And it's partly because her lawyer would tell her not to. If they're going to have any hope of solving the case, they're going to have to go through Emma. She's the key. 
The question is, how do they get access to her? And once they do, how do they convince her to cooperate? Sherlock decides it would be a mistake to go to her directly. The best chance is to bring Jubb over to their side because the Bordens trust Jubb. They have a lot of confidence in him for different reasons, because he's their spiritual advisor and because he's been loyal to them. And then after that, they bring in Morse. The reason they go to Jubb as opposed to the Reverend Buck is because they think that Jubb would be more open to an appeal from three British citizens, the Consul General, Sherlock, and Watson. And Sherlock is pretending to be an official representative of Scotland Yard, which he's not. But in that role, they think that Jubb would be more amenable, more open. Sherlock had worked for Scotland Yard, sort of a free agent during the Whitechapel murders, and we've talked about that a little bit. And in his capacity as a special detective, for the limited purposes of investigating those murders, Scotland Yard had issued him some official identification, what the British call a warrant card. It's not what it sounds like. We think of a warrant as something you go and serve on somebody in order to search their home. It's their term for police identification. I don't know exactly what form it took in those days. Nowadays, it's a trifold wallet. It's got three parts to it. You sort of flip it open, and in the middle, there's a medallion or a badge that's sewn onto the fabric. You show it to somebody, they look at it, they know you're a legitimate cop, and then you put it away. So whatever they used in those days, Sherlock has it. He still has the one they issued him in 1888 when he was working on the Whitechapel case. So he's going to pass himself off as an official employee of Scotland Yard. And that's how he's going to present himself to Jubb. So the next morning, they get up early. They're still in Boston. They go down to South Station. They meet Mr. Blunt. They go in a first-class compartment. But they don't go all the way to Fall River because Sherlock is still worried that Moriarty may be looking for them. He may be watching or having someone watch for him at the train station. So they get off in the town right before Fall River. It's a place called Somerset. It's right across the river from Fall River. There's a carriage waiting for them. They've made arrangements and the driver takes them across the bridge into the city and deposits them outside the rectory at the congregational church. They're ushered into a study, and they find a heavyset man in late middle age with white hair and a full beard, dressed in clerical garb. He introduces himself as the Reverend Jubb. Obviously, he's curious as to why they're there, and he wonders what he can do to help. So Sherlock takes command of the meeting right away, and he gets directly to the point. The first thing he does is he presents all of the documentation, Mr. Blunt's diplomatic credentials, Sherlock's police ID, Letters from the British government, including a letter from the Home Office, which is their equivalent to our Justice Department, roughly. A letter from the Foreign Office, which is their equivalent to our State Department. And then finally, he shows the warrant for Moriarty's arrest. And having got that out of the way, he goes on to explain that they are in America because they're pursuing an extremely dangerous man. Now, obviously, Blunt is in America because he's a consul general, but Blunt is there supporting them for that reason. He's there at the meeting for that reason. Although the warrant simply charges Moriarty with financial crimes, that's the tip of the iceberg. They suspect, they have evidence that within a short time, they'll be able to charge Moriarty with the Whitechapel murders. Now, I'm going to say as an aside, this isn't strictly true. They're not confident they're ever going to be able to pin this on him. But Sherlock says it anyway, because he wants to put as much pressure as possible on Jubb to cooperate. And if he says, The person we're after is Jack the Ripper. 
Jub is that much more likely to do whatever he can to help them. Sherlock goes on to say, this guy Moriarty has been on the run for some time. He's changed his name and identity on a regular basis. And sometime in the late spring or summer of 1891, he settles in southeastern Massachusetts. Now, we don't know exactly where he is, and we can't say what name he's currently using, but we're confident he's nearby. So, Sherlock goes on, you must be wondering why we're here and why we contacted you. And obviously, we need to explain. But before I get into any details, I want to assure you that we're not going to be asking you to divulge any confidential information that you may have obtained in your role as as a minister. And we want you to know that we've only come to you because we feel there's no other choice and there's no other way that we can move forward with this case. There's no easy way to say this. The man we're seeking the man we believe was intimately involved in the Whitechapel murders, we believe also played a critical role in the deaths of Mr. and Mrs. Borden. And more to the point, and this is critical, we believe that this man has for some time maintained a close relationship with your parishioner, Lizzie Borden. So at this point, as you'd expect, Jubb exhibits a physical response. He gives a start in the chair and the color drains from his face. He looks like he's about to protest, but Sherlock raises his hand and, you need to hear me out. We've come to you not just because you know this family, but because you're a British citizen. You understand how the British government works. And I'm appealing to your sense of patriotism, to your loyalty to England and to the crown. You have to understand we wouldn't be here 3,000 miles from home pursuing this man unless he truly posed a danger. We're not asking you to betray Miss Borden or anyone else in that family. You won't need to make that choice. We're promising you in our roles as representatives of the British government that we will not do anything to endanger Miss Lizzie or prejudice her case. What she knew and what role, if any, she played in those crimes doesn't matter to us. All we care about is capturing Moriarty and bringing him to justice. And we'd like to give you some time to think about all this, but we can't. Because Moriarty knows that we're on his trail. Someone has tipped him off. He doesn't say it was Watson who tipped him off. But anyway, he goes, we have to act immediately before this guy disappears again. Finally, Jubb interrupts, manages to interrupt, and he says, I have some questions. I, I, you got to clarify some things. First of all, what evidence do you have that Lizzie even knows this guy? And even if you can convince me that she does know him, Why should I help you catch him? Because if you catch him, isn't that going to reveal additional evidence that implicates her? So Sherlock replies by saying, here's how she knows him. Moriarty was trained as a doctor. In June 1890, he's working as a doctor on the Cunard liner Scythia. Now, Jubb obviously knows that Lizzie went to Europe. They've talked about this. Even though Lizzie's trip preceded Jubb's arrival in America, this is a topic that's come up in conversation. And he knows she took that ship. So when he hears that Moriarty, a.k.a. Jack the Ripper, was the doctor on the ship that Lizzie took on her trip to Europe, Watson can see the shock and dismay on the reverend's face. Holmes goes on and says, as for your second question, I don't think you need to worry that Moriarty's going to provide any damning evidence that implicates Lizzie. It's not in his interest to say anything about his involvement in those murders. The warrant just charges him with financial crimes. And from his perspective, That's infinitely better than facing murder charges. 
So what would he gain from saying, oh, by the way, I'm going to finger this woman that helped me murder her parents. How does that help him? That just gets him into more trouble. He doesn't want to face charges for murder here in America. And any evidence he gives the authorities that would help them prove that he was involved in the murders is only going to result in his conviction and execution. Now, having said that, I have to admit that if we do bring him into custody, in the process we may find evidence that links him to the Borden murders and, by extension, to Lizzie. But I can only tell you that we've made you this promise, and the promise is on my behalf and on behalf of my colleagues that we're not going to share any incriminating information with the local authorities. And all I can say is, you have to decide whether you trust us. I'm a practical person. I'm asking for your help, and I'm offering you something in exchange. I don't think I'm legally obligated to share any incriminating evidence that I might find regarding the Borden murders with the local authorities. Whether I'm morally bound to do that is another question. I'm not really worried about that. I see this as a complicated and delicate situation. And from my perspective, the only way that I can bring this villain to justice is by obtaining your assistance. I'm fully prepared to protect Miss Borden in exchange for your help. And for that matter, I don't even know for certain what degree of knowledge or participation she had with regard to these crimes. So for the purposes of my investigation and for the purposes of our meeting today, I'm going to give her every benefit of the doubt. Let's assume that Moriarty took advantage of her in every conceivable way. She was his unwitting target. He seduced her and he lied to her and he used her. He manipulated her. He formed a plot in his own mind to kill her parents and acquire her share of the estate, but he never told her. He led her to think that his intentions were honorable and she trusted him. I'm willing to accept that version of events. And that makes it much easier for me to justify my decision not to disclose any information after I lay hands on this guy. But Jubb has another objection. He says, if Moriarty already knows you're on his trail and you think he may disappear any minute, why not let him do it? Because if you do catch him, you can't guarantee that you can keep his connection to Miss Lizzie and the murders away from the police and the prosecution. They might come across information that links him to the crime as a result of you catching him and arresting him. Isn't it safer for me and for Lizzie just to do nothing and hope that he disappears? Holmes addresses this concern by saying he's like a wild animal and he's going to do anything to survive if he's cornered. He'll do whatever it takes. And disappearing isn't his only option. If he knows I'm on on his trail or if he suspects I'm on his trail, he may decide that his best option is not to run but to try to silence me and kill me. Because if he thinks it's me on his trail, he's going to assume that I will stay on his trail until I catch him. He may decide, I don't want to live on the run for the rest of my life, looking over my shoulder. The only thing I can do is turn around, face the guy, and try to kill him. And if that happens, he's not just going to try to kill me. He's going to try to kill my friend and companion, my associate who's here with me, Mr. Hazelhurst. So I'm not just talking about my own life, but I'm talking about the life of someone who I care about and somebody who's been my associate for many years. In addition, if he does succeed in killing us, there's no guarantee that the British government is going to send anybody else over here to resume the investigation. The Fall River police aren't going to make the connection. They're not going to know why we were killed if they ever find out we've been killed. Because they don't know about Moriarty. They don't know about his role in the Borden case. 
this might actually be Moriarty's best option. And if he does kill us and get away with it, then he's here and you have nobody tracking him down or trying to catch him. And then he's got free reign and he can do whatever he wants with respect to Lizzie and the rest of the Borden family. And if that's the case, if she's acquitted, she's in trouble because he's there ready to resume his machinations, continue to pressure her and do everything he can to reassert his dominance. It doesn't matter whether she welcomes his presence in her life. He would be in a position to torment and harass her forever. He's a cunning guy with a lot of criminal experience. And one of the things he's learned is the value of getting and retaining incriminating evidence when he's dealing with somebody. And so what I'm sure he has is a lot of correspondence from Lizzie, which he's prepared to use to keep her in line. And the thing you need to understand is that his ultimate goal is to get his hands on the Borden inheritance. And if he manages to do that, then Lizzie and her sister are as good as dead. So there's a lull in the conversation at this point. Sherlock's letting the Reverend Jubb think things over, and you can picture the scene. They're in a study. The room is silent except for the sound of a ticking clock, and there's this tension in the air as they all wait for Jubb to respond and make a decision. Everything's hanging in the balance. Sherlock is the next one to speak. He breaks the silence and says, I want you to be clear about what's going to happen. If you refuse to help us... I don't see any way that we're going to lay hands on this guy. And I think at that point, we have no choice but to go to the police and the prosecutor and tell them everything we know. And that's not to punish you. That's not to punish Lizzie Borden. It's with the faint hope that by providing them with this information, they'll actually do their job and pursue this guy. And you may regard what I'm telling you as a threat, but I'm telling you it's not. That's not the case. We just don't have any other options. And you can't expect me to walk away from this man simply because you won't help me. I have to do whatever I can in my power to bring him to justice. So if you don't agree to help, this is my only option. There's another silence. It's obvious that Jubb is still trying to process everything. And then after a few minutes, he turns to Holmes and says, Tell me exactly what you want me to do. Okay, Sherlock says. Let's talk specifics. First of all, from what I can tell, there's no point in asking to speak with Lizzie directly. We'd have to go through her attorneys. They'd say no. They'd have to ask her first. Even if they considered doing this, they would have to talk to her first. My sense is she's too proud. She's too obstinate. She's too determined to have as much control of her own life and her case as possible. And that the answer would be a flat no. She may even still be in love with this guy. She may still be under his control. I think she probably is. And in that case, it would be another reason not to even bother. I don't think we need to speak with her in order to find Moriarty. But I do think we're going to need Emma's help. I have evidence that she's involved in this case, at the very least in the role of a go-between, carrying messages back and forth between Moriarty and her sister. If we approach her without your assistance... Without the assistance of her uncle, I don't think we'd get anywhere. She doesn't know us. She has no reason to trust us. She would instinctively turn us away and then at the first opportunity go to her sister. Her sister would say, don't talk to them, and Emma will do whatever her sister tells her. That's why I need your help. If you agree to help and if you encourage her to cooperate, I think we have a real chance of tracking this man down. 
but we're also going to need the assistance of her uncle because they have a close relationship, and I understand that she trusts Morse, and she values his support, and I get the impression he's honest and reliable, and that we'll be able to convince him that this is the right thing to do. As I said, we came to you first because we thought you'd be the most open to our request, because you're familiar with our system, our government, how things work. You have that advantage, and I think that you would trust me in my role as a Scotland Yard detective, which, as I said, wasn't true, and Mr. Blunt in his role as a loyal servant to Her Majesty, and that once you agree to help us, that we'll be able to bring Mr. Morse over. So if you're willing to do this, our next step is get Mr. Morse and bring him back and talk to him. I have somebody watching his house. I have an associate. It turns out it was one of his reporter buddies who had borrowed money from him and owed him a favor. And he's got this guy watching the house. And this guy has sent him a telegram earlier in the day that Holmes picked up on the way from Somerset to the meeting with Job. They had stopped at a Western Union office. So he'd gotten a telegram earlier that day confirming that Morse was at the house. But at any rate, he says, I think Mr. Morse is at the house. We need to go over there. We need to get him and bring him back. And we need to talk to him. And we can't wait. We can't wait until tomorrow. So I'm sorry to dump all this on you. I'm sorry to put you in a position where you have to make this decision so quickly, but we just don't have time. And I need an answer now before we leave. If you tell me no, I've already explained, we're not even going to bother to approach Mr. Morse. It isn't worth it. We're going to go straight to the police. Sherlock is gambling everything on this interview. He's doing a certain amount of bluffing and hoping that it works. And so they're sitting there in silence looking at Reverend Jubb, waiting for him to make a decision. And the way that Watson describes this, it sounds as if he found it to be almost intolerable. They only waited about five or ten minutes to get an answer, but Watson said it felt like hours. So we're going to leave off here, and next time we'll pick up with the Reverend's decision and go from there. I hope you join me, and until then, take care. 